You are listening to the Balmetto State Podcast, where we have conversations about all things basketball with a South Carolina flavor. Let's get started and tip off this episode with your host, the head basketball coach at Westwood High School, John Combs. Welcome to the Balmetto State Podcast. Uh, Today we're excited to have Coach JoJo English. Coach English is the head boys basketball coach at Richland Northeast High School. We're excited to have Coach English on today because he has an extensive playing and coaching career and looking forward to having a conversation with him today. Coach English, how are you doing today? All is well, Coach. I appreciate you having me on. Coach, we really appreciate your time. Um, We are recording this during the uh, coronavirus uh, crisis. So how how are you spending your time now? Um, well, with the family, you know, my daughter is um in the fourth grade, so she has her, you know, e learning and 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 stuff to do during the during the day. And my wife is a teacher at Blythewood, so she has to do her um classroom work. And you know, I kind of help my daughter in and out now and again when I can. And uh, the first part was more so like resting from you know the, the cross country season the basketball season season is assistant ad but you know um just trying to spend more time with the family and take care of my parents and stuff like that right now yeah i've i've enjoyed this time it's kind of a slow down time um, my yard's actually looking better than it normally does this time of the year um but it, it's been nice to have a little little extra downtime coach you've been around a lot of great coaches at the highest levels high school college who would you say some of your biggest influences have been in, on your life? Um, in, in the sports realm, I would I would have to say, um, um, I guess when I first started, I had a uh, my first quote unquote coach was Coach Jimmy Butts, and he was um, um, one of my um, father, I guess fellow comrades in the military at Fort Jackson at a particular time. So he he ran the gym. So when I had to, you know you know, go to work with my dad. He was just dropping me off at the gym with coach Butts. And he first started me with the fundamentals of basketball. He told me something a long time ago that I never really forgot. He said that, you know, um, if you want to be a good um, high school player or whatever, maybe you spend an hour or two in the gym a day. He said, if you want to be a really good college player, you spend two to four hours. He said, if you want to be a pro, you're going to spend eight hours or plus in the gym, working on your body throughout the day to be really that good. And it, it always resonated with me, you know, down the line. And then, of course, I um, had Coach Former, Gary Former, as my JV coach, um, my 10th grade year at Lower Richland. And he really, you know, um, instilled the the hard work and the, the discipline on defense and stuff of that particular nature in me. And then that transition between playing for Coach Childers, you know, of course, I had an opportunity to play for Coach Glimp, um, you know, in the summers, AAU. And the fundamentals and learning the different aspects of, you know, how he taught defense and the fundamentals of footwork and how to pass the basketball, how to catch the basketball and all that kind of stuff. I always paid attention as a kid. I was never like, you know, certain athletes where I, I thought I knew everything. And then, you know, as I went on to the University of South Carolina, Tubby Smith was one of our um, assistant coaches on the George film with Eddie Payne and Scott Rougeau. And um, Joe Dooley, who happened to be a grad assistant at a particular time, and all these coaches ended up being head coaches, you know, down the line. So I've always was, was blessed at a, at a developmental stage in, in my you know basketball career to have really good co- coaches that emphasize the fundamentals and hard work and stuff of that particular nature in the beginning. 
Yeah, I mean, I think about that staff that was there uh, with Coach Felton, like you said, with Coach Smith, um, you know, Coach Dooley. And I mean, there was just so many really good coaches there at the University of South Carolina um, during that time. But let's go back a little bit to your high school days. You're a 1988 graduate of Lower Richland High School. You know, some people would say that that 1988 Lower Richland team may be one of the best ever in the in South Carolina. How, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I wouldn't deny that. Um, we we came up, all of us came up together through um, basically kindergarten on up. Outside of William Key, who ended up transferring from um, like Charlotte Rocky area my my uh, junior year, but myself, um, Charles Jacobs, Tim Burroughs, Stanley Roberts. Um, Roger Tucker, Mike Lassen, and the, the core group of that team, you know, we grew up together. So that senior year, you know, I, I never – I take the – you know, that we won back-to-back state championships. But our junior year, that was for Tracy Garrett and God bless the dead, you know, William Goodwin. They they were our leaders. That's their state championship. We helped them to get that. Now, our senior year, we had to kind of like um, reinforce it. So we were battle-tested because we played games against, um, of course – uh, Eau Claire four times a year, twice in the regular season, once in the region tournament because they had a region tournament back back then, and usually right in the third round of the playoffs before we went to the uh, the lower state. And on top of that, we played um, you know Christmas tournaments. We went to Florida and, and to Kissimmee, and then my senior year we go, went with the Pine Bluff, um, who at the time was the number one high school basketball tournament in the country, country, and we played an exhibition game in the beach ball. So we were exposed to a lot of high-level basketball at a young age. On top of, um, I think six or seven of us from South Carolina was voted to go to the Nike um, camp and um, at Princeton the summer between our junior and senior years. And I believe it was myself, um, Anton Brown, um, Everett Sullivan, David Young, Joe Rett, um, and and Stanley Roberts. We were like that crew out of South Carolina that was able to go to the Nike um, ABC uh, ABCDE at camp at that particular time. And um, you know, Coach Childers was my varsity basketball coach, and he really taught me. And I, I fall back on his management type skill, the way he was organizing practice. And him and Coach Former were the first ones to introduce like the clock in practice. So we had 15 minutes on this drive, like why the clock is running. But, you know, they taught us at a young age, like this is how much time we're going to spend on this. Now we might've did a lot of the same things every single day because, you know, that was the the basic fundamentals of basketball. But, you know, that management style, that, that, that working hard on top of the talent level, you know, that we had to compete against. So you never could have a, a situation where you're like, you thought you were better than somebody else because every single day you you always playing, playing against somebody or competing against somebody who is just as good as you or better than you. So it always made you work as hard as you possibly could um, all the time. Yeah. Now, later, after you won a state championship, later in May of 1988, you entered, you were into the slam dunk contest at the Carolina Coliseum that also happened to feature michael jordan as a celebrity guest judge tell me a little bit about that experience what what do you remember about that oh uh, well I, I once i found out i couldn't be in it um me um barry manning at the particular time um i had just signed my letter of intent to go to the university of Carolina in april so coach glimp was like okay well you can't be in it but you still gonna come here and dunk <laughs> and it was kind of different you know back then because we always had respect for authority even though coach glimp wasn't my quote-unquote head high school basketball coach once he said or told us to do something we did it it don't matter where we were at so i was like okay well you know i 
I come there and when we got there, you know, the, the building was packed, of course, and they had the, the you know, high school uh, three-point contest, high school dunk contest. So Coach Glimp was like, okay, well, go underneath, you know, and, and get loose. So if anybody's kind of familiar with their inner workings of the, the Frank McGuire Arena, there's like a, a big area underneath the, 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 the stands and the bleachers or whatever it may be where, you know, you can run up and down and stuff like that. So I was back there, you know, trying to get loose, nervous, but I wasn't afraid. I might have been a little bit scared, but um, Barry Man was back there gassing me up and stuff like that. So um, Coach Glenn came and got me and had me sit out, and, you know, Jordan was right in the chair, and it was like, okay, we're going to do one or two dunks. He was like, okay, well, you go first, young fella. You do something, and I'll follow behind you. And, you know, it was supposed to be really about four dunks, maybe six dunks total. So I went out there, and I was kind of imitating the dunks I've seen him do. And he was like maybe two steps behind me. So as, as soon as I dunked the basketball and landed – there was another basketball coming through the net right at me. Boom. So he's like, okay, young fella, show me something else. So I was kind of, you know, leaning to the side, the, the rock the cradle dunk, kiss the rim. I was doing all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I started getting a little confidence because I was doing everything and then the crowd was involved. So I was like, okay, well, you do something. I'll follow you. So he went and, you know, kissed the rim and dunked it. So I tried to embellish it a little bit. So I went out and got one of my, um, my friends, I think it was Andre Bovain at particular time. We ended up going, played at Keenan, ended up going to, um, Clemson to come out and step, maybe like a step outside the block, you know, put your foot down. And I left from there and I did it. So that started getting the crowd more and more involved. And and I didn't think it was going to be as serious as, as it was at the beginning. But then you could tell Jordan started taking it like, like, okay, let me, let me zip these pants up. Let me tighten my shoes up a little bit. We about to, you know, get a little more serious. So he did another dunk and I did the same thing. So, you know, the crowd is always was, was so involved in it because I guess I'm just a kid out here competing with him. And then that's when he, you know, waved his hand and backed me up and left from the free throw lines. <laughs> and that was the only dunk I missed that particular night. So I was like, and he wanted to keep on going, but I was like, no, nah, I had enough. I think I, I did enough. I don't want to mess it up. You know, this is something I can, I can hold on to. I can always tell my daughter I beat, you know, Jordan in, in a dunk contest. You know, it was only two people that that whole year that um, forced Jordan to leave from the free throw line and win a dunk contest, and it was JoJo and Dominique Wilkins because that following. Um, that all-star game that year happened to be in Chicago. And that's when him and Dominique Wilkins had that dunk contest. And, you know, and he had to leave from the free throw line to beat Dominique. So this is kind of like a little four-quarter thing that I'll be able to, you know, tell my daughter years from now, (laughs) whether she believed me or not, I don't know. And if I'm not mistaken, you were wearing the Air Jordan 3s when you did that. Is that correct? Yeah, the 3s or the 4s, you had the red and black ones. And I had the the Chicago Bulls little t um tank top that I ran to Tottenham Moore Sports and got right before I went to the, <laughs> you know, to the Coliseum. I just remember that. And my dad took me there and it's one of my f- favorite memories because you were right. The Carolina Coliseum was rocking. And I was also even told that Jordan wasn't really expected to even dunk or do much of anything. I mean, he had pants on non-athletic pants. It didn't look like non-athletic pants. And it, the atmosphere was absolutely incredible and that's uh that is something you should you know you should think very fondly of and people ought to they they want to see there's a few uh videos of it on youtube that's got some of it on there it is really really good now maybe outside of that what are some of your favorite sporting memories that you were part of either as a a player or or even as a coach um i guess coming up in my, my jv year we had um you know we always had a jv tournament and i took the time um eau claire's jv was 
running through the JV ranks. And uh, we happened to play them in a semifinal game in the Rock Pit. And up until that point, there was no LR team to ever beat Lower Richland in the Rock Pit at that particular time. And I could never forget us playing against Joe Gillum, um, Pete Fowles, Joe Red, and that crew when it was 10th graders. And Coach Glimp and Coach Children sitting up in the bleachers on the top row side, side by side talking. And we happened to beat them in a semifinal game um, to go to play for a JV championship in the region. That was like one of my first basketball memories that I really, really, really hold on to because it, it always taught me that no matter how good somebody thinks that somebody else you're competing against is, you have the ability to compete with them. That don't mean you're going to beat them. That means you're going to win or anything like that. But you can just be just as good as they are on that particular night. And then once I got um, to, you know, my 11th grade year and making the varsity and, and um, stuff of that particular nature, um, my junior year was good, but like I say, I, I, you know, most of the memories, I, I, it was me helping, you know, Tracy Garrett and, and William Goodman, um, you know, win their state championship. And I think that senior year, once us, the way we competed against Eau Claire, we lost the first game in the Coliseum against Eau Claire because we changed our style. We we walked out instead of doing our normal run out of normal woman. That, that always taught me something today to even the kids I coach. You know, don't try to think that you're better than other team. Always stay with your natural routine. Always think that somebody's good enough to beat you. Always warm up the same way. Always warm up as hard as you can because you can motivate another team by coming out thinking that your posture or the way you handle yourself, you're better than them, you know, and stuff of that particular nature. But competing against Eau Claire those four times and 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 winning that state championship. And in the summer before, we won an AAU national championship. You know, when we combined our, basically our Columbia teams, um, you know, myself, Jorette, from Eau Claire, Stanley, um, Tim Burroughs, our point guard, Charles Jacobs, Pete Fowles, point guard at Eau Claire. Um, Troy Jordan was the only one from Lou Golf that was outside of the circle. Um, Greg Balknight from AC Floor, uh, Mike Glover um, from um, Keenan. You know, we all made the team up and went out and won an AAU National Championship. We had better players in the state, but Coach, Coach Glip didn't take them. It was Everett Sullivan, who was a senior at a particular time at Hillcrest. Um, David Young, who ended up being the starting point guard at Clemson, who was at uh, Greenville High at the particular time on top of um, Hal Henderson, who went to Furman, and Bruce Evans, who played Atlanta, who played with um, Everett. We didn't even take those players, and we still won with the core group, you know, to win the AAU National Championship. So my high school days, to me, I tell uh, people that those are my most special basketball moments in terms of, like, you know, proving yourself. And then once I went on to the University of South Carolina, and playing in Frank McGuire Arena, um, you know, my sophomore year, uh, you know, we had so many different injuries with, like, guys, you know, Barry Brooker's wrist, Troy became ineligible, Joe had, Joe Red had the heart condition, and then we ended up beating Clemson our final game of um, my sophomore year for us to finish 14-14. That's the same team that went and lost to Connecticut in the NCAA tournament a few weeks after that, but they had Dale Davis, Elder Campbell, they had three first round picks on that team. You know, um, my junior year, you know, beating Temple um, in Frank McGuire Arena. Um, you know, those are some very, very special moments. And then my senior year was actually our very first year in the SEC, you know, um, as a college basketball player. So people, like I tell the my kids, I coach, I say, I'm a five decade baby. Y'all don't understand. <laughs> I, 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 I coached basketball when it wasn't a three point line. You know, I won a championship in the Coliseum and in the Colonial Center. You know, um, I was part of the first teams and first 
integration into the SEC. We played the Mashburns and the Allen Houston's and the Latrell Sprewells and the Shacks and the Robert Ories and the James Hollywood Robinsons. When we first got into, you know, the SEC, people don't really realize that. They just think that we've been in the SEC, I guess, our whole time. We was in the Metro Conference, you know, with Memphis State and Virginia Tech and um, Florida State and those different teams, you know, like that coming up. So Those were some good know, battles with those Metro those Conference some, teams. Great battles. Elliot Perry, who's a um, um, majority owner at um, with the Memphis Grizzlies now. My cousin John Morant played with them, and um, you know we joke once you know my team Morant, his father got there. He sent a message back to me, and I always give him respect that he was the toughest basketball player in college that we had to play against him and Charlie Ward. It's almost like you couldn't beat him because they never got tired. They never really make mistakes. They never turned the ball over. As a guard, you like okay, I can. I can score on this guy. He's going to make him say, he's going to turn the ball over. He's going to do – those guys never did that. They were not the, quote-unquote, Allen Iversons and all these kind of people of college basketball, but they were conducive to winning. So all those things that I, I watched and and played against, and, you know, as a player, I try to implement and look for as a coach also. Now, maybe this is me having a bad memory, but did, maybe I didn't want to remember this, but didn't Elliot Perry hit like a half-court shot or something that – in one of those games, that was an important yeah. shot. Yeah, he beat us at, at in. That was our game. I think um, it's my junior year for us to. I don't know whether it was our seating in the in the in the um, conference, but yeah, it wasn't quite a a, a a half court shot, but it was a three. And he normally wasn't a shooter. He wasn't the guy coming down and started on pull up shoot a three. You know, he gonna run the offense if he had to shoot a three, kind of like John Stockton. You know, if he really had to shoot it, he could make two or three in a row. But he didn't go down there trying to shoot a three. You know what I mean? It just came in here. He hit a big shot in Columbia. We had to leave. We weren't supposed to beat them. I think they were ranked like 19th in the country at a particular time. And, you know, we were, you know, of course, unranked and decided to compete. And he hit a big three, a big three to beat us in Columbia and Frank McGuire Arena my junior year or last year in the Metro Conference, actually. Yeah, I remember those the Metro Conference days. There's a lot of really good basketball, and of course that first year in the SEC. I remember that first game against Kentucky, and then later against LSU. Well, you know, after you you left South Carolina, you end up playing. I want to say 10, 11, 12 years professional basketball, and it looked like you've. I mean, you played a lot of different places. Three of them with with the Chicago Bulls. How, how was that experience with the Bulls? Um, it was it was it was um like life changing to a certain degree in terms of perspective. Um, now I wasn't drafted coming out of college, um, and stuff of that particular nature. I didn't have all these kind of workouts and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, after the draft, like the date of the night of the draft, I started getting, you know, calls from like seven different teams that would invite you to come in to work out and play with their summer league teams. And, you know, some of them just wanted you to come to this summer league. They might have had 12 guaranteed contracts. It's not like it is now where, excuse me, you have um, like 13 on the roster, three on the injury reserve, um, another three or four that played G League up and down. So it's basically 18 total on the roster, give or take. When I came through, it was 12 on the roster and one injury reserve. So it's 13 dudes, no matter what, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So um, I was with Houston, actually, when Rudy Tom John was a coach. Dick Harder was the defensive coach. Um, Rick Carlisle was a uh, – not Rick Carlisle um, – um, uh, his name's gonna come back to me. Um, was the 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 offensive coach at a particular time? So, you know, I played in the the, the Rocky Mountain Review, the first 
the first time the NBA had a summer league. It was out in Utah. And that's how old I am. I, I was I played the first year when it was a three point line in, in um in um high school basketball in South Carolina. I was a member of the first SEC basketball team and you know, the first team to win an AAU national championship and stuff of that particular nature. So <clears throat> you know, but but to to not not to change the point, but to 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 kind of piggyback what, what I think that we're all saying in this conversation is that like me as a coach and developing all these different life experiences helped me to and still helping me, teaching me how to to work with kids and try to make them, you know, the 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 best that they can be. So at the University of South Carolina and transitioning into the pros. So I was at with Houston and then, you know, I had a great game against Utah one night. We played Utah in the main gym and I might have had like 11 points in the first two minutes. So I'm walking off the court to the locker room and Jerry Krause at the time, I didn't know who it was, reached over. I'm walking and a, a hand reached out with a, a piece of paper with a, a room number and a, a telephone number. It's like, call this number. We want to talk to you. So um, it was a number. So I ended up having to go into this hotel room and it was um, um, Phil Jackson, uh, Johnny Bach, Tex Winter, Clarence Gaines, who was a scout, Big House Gaines' wow. son, um, Jim Stack. Um, it's probably like, I don't know, six or seven people in the room. So I had to sit down and they start asking you questions, you know, and those NBA people know everything about you, just like college coaches know everything about high school kids. Like why you didn't play that much this game? Why you, you know, got a technical foul or why you got suspended from school or all this other kind of stuff. So they started asking me questions about, you know, college and all this kind of stuff. And, and I was like, Oh, you know, talking to them and they were like, okay, well, we don't have a summer league team out here. Now this is the year after they won the, the, the second championship that, going into that third one so um we're going to invite uh 40 guys to a rookie camp for three days and we're going to take six out of that 40 to veterans camp so i was one of the 40 you know i mean it's jaron jackson i'm seeing guys from lsu and north carolina and alabama and ucla all these different you know jerseys so you go through the two-day process you know in the morning this fundamental skill work footwork defense um um, they would divide you up in three groups, you know, point guards, wings, and post. And all your drills were based on the position that you kind of play, you know, whether you're point guard, can you guard in space, guard a pick and roll. Um, the wing players had to guard on the wing, post in the post, and, you know, passing and all that kind of stuff. But I always had a good fundamental background playing for Coach Foreman, playing for Coach Glimp, that the stuff they asked us to do was already, you know, simple to me. Jump stop, front pivot, reverse pivot, make a bounce pass, shot fake high, you know, pass low, all that kind of stuff like that. That was the the foundation of the triangle offense, and you had to be able to do that. Now, there were some great athletes there. Guys could run and jump and dunk and do all that kind of stuff, but they didn't make it past that, you know, because they didn't they didn't understand, you know, the the, the, the game of basketball. So, you know, guys get cut, guys get cut. So I was one of the six, um, along with myself, Kelsey Williams, God bless the dead, Ricky Blanton, um, Anderson Hunt from UNLV, Courtney Johnson, from Mississippi State at a particular time, and it's two other guys who who kind of Gerald Mackins who played at um, UCLA. Um, we were kind of like the six, and we called it no name gang. So we always had the yellow jerseys, but it was the white team, red team, and the yellow team. So we always earned our respect because we would play games of three, and and the way it was is like okay, white versus red on the court. <clears throat> as soon as the other team scored, if you get the three, the losing team gets off, and they got to run 18 laps, which 
the, the Bulls were the first team that had an indoor practice facility. So 18 laps was a mile. So while that team that lost was running a mile, you came on and played. So as a no-name game, we won a couple of those games. You know, it's really like they would play seven games. So if we won two, it was almost like we won eight because we weren't supposed to win none. You know, the first team would have, you know, Jordan and Pax and maybe um, Tony and, you know, uh, Horace and, you know, Bill. And then the second team would be Stacy, Scott Williams, Scotty, you know, um, uh, Steve Kerr, BJ, you know, and you got to compete and play. and you know, against, you know, those type guys. So I was end up being the, the very last cut, like the 13th guy um, competing with Corey Williams for the last spot. But they drafted him up out of, um, um, I think it was Oklahoma State um, or whatever it may be. So they ended up um, keeping him because Jerry Krause invested a draft pick on him, but I was playing more than he was. And then I ended up getting called back up um, two weeks later. Um, got two 10 days. This is the year of their third championship. So I was, you know, because feel always like big guards, but on top of that, like guys that can run the triangle mm-hmm. and, and stuff of that particular nature. And that play D and make, even if you didn't play that many minutes, you have to make the starters really, really, really work in practice. You know, that's why I try to tell a lot of college kids, you see kids on that bench that they never get in, never play and stuff like that. It's just not, they, they're not sitting there because they can't, they sit in there because they really make it difficult on those guys on that court that are playing in practice. And a lot of those kids are there, you know, maybe because um, they were supposed to be high level D2, but they went to a D1 school where they, you know, there's more talent, but they're going to, you know, graduate and get their school paid for because they can help a team in practice to get better. Usually teams that are really good have really good practice teams who they play against. They're just not going to go out there and not talent. So that was my role at first um, with the Bulls and stuff like that, and that's how I made it. And then once I went through that and I got released from the Bulls, I went to the CBA and ended up finishing um, on the first team um, all-rookie, and I had a guaranteed, partially guaranteed deal with the Minnesota Timberwolves. Sitting low as the coach. They drafted Christian Leitner and um, – so for that particular nature, J.R. Ryder was coming in, and then Jordan retired. And then I was on the floor stretching, and then I got a little piece of paper reached over my hand and saying that, do you want to go back to Chicago? And that's when, you know, these are kind of like points that validated you as a basketball player because Phil Jackson liked big guards, but they wanted somebody that knew how to run the triangle, you know, and stuff of that particular nature. So I knew that I had a, a certain basketball acumen on top of just being an athlete. Because I never was the finished product in high school or college. I was still really learning how to play. You know, I, I never reached my full potential at those particular levels and stuff of that particular nature. So, but I always had a good fa- fundamental foundation that made me, you know, be able to, you know, at least have an opportunity to play at, you know, you know, all three levels, all four levels, actually. When you were in the middle of that, when you were battling for positions and team spots, did you enjoy yourself or was it mentally, did it wear on you? I mean, it didn't wear on me because it was the same type of battles I experienced at, when I was coming through like Lower Richmond. It was the same type of battles that my father instilled on me. You know, it was just that I had a different mentality. So, you know, back in the day, when you're in training camp, you have a roommate, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. I wasn't sitting there talking to him, asking him, you know, what's his Twitter, what's his text or where he came from or, <laughs> or stuff like that. We had very little conversation. It was like, hey, how you doing, man? You know, I'm kind of shut it down by 10 o'clock. Can you turn that TV off? 
because I'm about to go at you in the morning. I was the type one that that attacked the process and then I let the process attack me. So getting up in the morning, there was two vans that left. One left at eight and one left at like eight thirty. I was always on that first van and I always sat in the first seat. It was all kind of like psychological stuff for me. You know what I mean? I wanted to, I I might not have been as quote unquote talented or or better than this other particular guy, but on this particular day, I'm I'm gonna be just as good as him. Because I was always taught that it was like if you want to make a team, you want to do something. Like when they have different drills, you know, there's there's lines of players. You know, as a coach, you have you might have you know you know big guys on one end, guards on the other end, whatever it may be. Uh, what I did, I used to always get in the line by the guys who I knew that the, he he was a starter or he was the better player or he was the D1 guy or whatever it may be. Let me get in line with him. So I'm going to be matched up with him. when We doing one-on-one the wing or we doing one-on-one zigzag or we doing box out drills or we doing shooting drills or whatever it may be. I'm going to get by him. Yeah. You know, that, that, that was my mentality always. I always, as a coach, I look at when we do different drills, I look at who's guarding who, you know, who, you know, does, does our better players try to go against better guys or the, or do they try to guard someone that's not as talented? I, I like to see the competitive, nature of our guys see what uh, see what they do coach phil jackson what do you take from him in in your time being around him um the 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 mental preparation the internal internalization of basketball um the inner working of parts um and stuff of that particular nature and i i it was tremendous for me to earn his, his respect you know like when we went on those long um plane trips or long road trips, those uh, five or six game road trips and stuff like that. He gave everybody a book. You know, I, I still got both books. He gave me, he gave me one book was Parish Trout. And another book was, um, it's like a, almost like a pamphlet, but it's called um, Love, Love and Happiness in Life. How do you find love and happiness in life? And I still got him because he got to say, you know, he signed them, mm. you know, and, and stuff of that particular nature. But, you know, playing for him and, and going through, the, the practices and the, the, the competing, not just at the film sessions where a lot of the film sessions wasn't even really about basketball is more so like the mental approach because Johnny Bach did a lot of the film sessions. So we would come in there and sit down think we're getting ready to watch the, the Detroit Pistons or whatever it may be. And he would show us like the first part of full metal jacket, you know, the wow. discipline with the Marine and, and all that kind of stuff and the in your face and the curse. And, the, and it wasn't, I don't think it's so much demeaning, but it was so much how you had to execute, execute the details to be really, really good, no matter, you know, uh, how talented you are. And if you wasn't that talented, you playing together, you understanding your not necessarily role, but he would call it like your purpose. And um, he had this thing on the wall. Don't get me wrong. I'm I'm not the most intelligent person. I think that they call it like a heliogram where they have circles outside of circles. And there's probably eight of them. So what the coaches did, they had one of them closed up where they pick like, where where do you think you're at in terms of the team? Where like the middle part is like 12 o'clock. You know what I mean? So if you like really, so, you know, of course, Jordan, he's going to be his circle or his dot going to be close to the middle. Mm-hmm. You know, Scotty might be a ring behind it. You know, like it went like that. So, uh, you know, we all had there was a, 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 a one that everybody can go up and put where they think they're at. So I was like, <laughs> they started laughing because I put mine like at right at five o'clock because I'm I'm day to day. I don't know what I'm going to get cut today or <laughs> Well, they don't call me. I'm on non-guaranteed <laughs> hour to hour type deal. So, and then he un- he unveiled like 
how the coaches felt about the players and how the players felt about the coaches, like where they at in terms of the team, you know. And of course, you had the little semi-mental battles with like Harris wanted to feel like he was just as important as like Scotty and Michael in terms of the little things like when they go on the road, who got the suite and who got the bigger room, and it, you know, you would think that stuff like that wasn't important, but in the egos of men. <laughs> that kind of stuff, you know, factors in. So I don't even think it was so much the material stuff, but he wanted his value and what he did, you know, to be recognized as just as important. But he, he eventually realized that he was one of the ones who did stuff that never, ever really got the publicity, but that's the reason why they, they won the rebounding, the making the layups, the, the making the free throws, the defending the other really good power forward centers and all that kind of stuff. The same thing Dennis Rodman did, the same thing that Paul Gasol did so Kobe can win, the same thing Tim Duncan has done. You know, um, and it, it goes on Dirk Nowitzki. Um, uh, even when LeBron won in Miami, he became a quote-unquote power forward where Pat Riley made him play from free throw line below, you know, where he caught it, one, two, dribble, score or kick it out and let Dwayne Wade bring the ball up and kind of, you know, that's when he won multiple, multiple championships and stuff of that particular nature. So I learned how to really internalize basketball, um, how to un understand it, their angles. They taught us everything about like, like I tell our kids, I said, y'all look at a basketball court and y'all ignore a lot of things. These lines and, and, and angles and stuff are on the court for a reason. The semicircles, the, the, the triangles, the squares, the backboards and stuff like that, because it's made for you to be in a certain spot. And the more you shoot from the spot, the more you're going to make it. I said, look at all the NBA top scores, top, top 10 scores of all time. They're big guys. Guess what? Because the more you, the closer you are to the basket, the more, the taller you are, throw it up, turn around, lay the basketball in. You know what I mean? <laughs> Michael Jordan is an exception, but he made a lot of his points going to the basket. He wasn't, he wasn't a three-point shooter. He scored 60 points off twos, you know, Kobe, you know, LeBron is something different, but all the league's leading scorers were big people. And when I played with the Bulls, like the first four or five plays of every game were go to Cartwright, let him get going early, let him get, you know, start inside out. And of course, you know, Michael's going to be Michael, Scotty's going to be Scotty and stuff like that. But it was so simple because they, they predicated everything they did on the simple things of basketball, but allowed you to use your, you know, extraordinary talent to make it even better yeah and, and soon after your playing career you end up going into coaching and you've you've coached in high school now and you've coached in in college you know what 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 made you want to be a, a coach uh well it was kind of something that my mom them you know my mom and dad and to this day that every game from when i coached in college when i played um, and stuff of that particular nature. Is, um, she always wanted me to work with kids. That's why they built the basketball court in my backyard because she was like, even if I didn't coach, she can, I can get all the neighborhood kids to come in the backyard and do a camp. You know, she was, you know, my, the, the, a lot of times people can see stuff in you that you don't really see in yourself. You, you know, you understand what I'm saying? I think that, um, that was, that, that's my main purpose is helping kids. It's not, you know, uh, creating the best basketball player or the state champion or the best this and that and stuff like that is helping kids that, like, if I wasn't a part of their life, they probably wouldn't make it or they probably wouldn't be as as um, as successful if I if I didn't make that sacrifice to a certain degree. And um, I think that that is the foundation of my purpose in coaching 
you know, high school and even in, with college, the, 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 the college kids um, from Catawba, my first year, my first full year there, we won 18 games. It was the first year they had a winning record in eight seasons. And I use the same principles as a player, as a coach, you know, and playing hard and competing. And when you step in the gym, like Coach Glimp, you weren't allowed to walk in the gym without your shoes tied. You know, like right now to this day, there's no kid that can come in my gym and don't have like basketball shoes on. You can't shoot around in my gym with flip flops. Mm-hmm. You can't shoot around the gym with your shoes untied. That means you're not really prepared to play. That means you just out here playing. You just out here. You need to go to another spot to do that. But when you come in here, you're trying to do the best that you possibly can do. I ain't asking you to, you know, to be anything better than what you can be for that particular day. So, you know, I still fall back on a lot of those principles, you know, and, and, and that's the thing that that keeps me, you know, like coaching. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't like say I'm going to go ahead and coach the PJ Halls and the, the Miles Tates and the, the Jermaine O'Neal's or the Stanley Roberts, the, the super great particular paper um, kids, you know, like in high school, you know, in, in large part, you got to coach whoever gets on and off that bus or whoever gets dropped off in that car line. You know, you understand what I'm saying? Oh yeah. And they might not be the, the quote unquote Michael Jordan of, of of high school basketball and thing like that, but you can help them be the quote unquote Michael Jordan of their particular life, and and certain life lessons that you teach them. Yeah, I mean that's that's really good stuff, Coach. What, what do you feel like the toughest parts of your job of our job as being a, a basketball coach and working in the schools are? Um, I would say the unrealistic parent. First, not parents now. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying parents is general. It's just that sometimes you, you, you encounter the parents who think that their kid are a lot better than what they are, or their kid better than, than the collective team. Mm-hmm. And 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 that is the most destructive um, uh, issue to me in, in really good teams um, because they can affect how that kid comes to practice, how they operate, or whatever it may be. You know, um, in terms of the second thing will be having to have the responsibility of being uh, daddy, uncle, big brother, only male figure to a lot of kids who are um, enduring and experiencing things that are out of their control. That was, you know, in place before they were even born. And a lot of that falls onto your coach because you have these kids in your life and around you so many hours of the day, so many days of the week so many weeks of the year that they become a part of you and, and, you know, your, your, your life gets intertwined with, you know, their mannerisms or their behavior patterns and, and, and the same with them. You know, the kids know how I come to the gym. They know, you know, when that clock goes up, they know when I put that whisper, they start to know your everything where they can emulate and, and stuff of that particular nature and having to deal with those kids who, who have issues that are like far beyond your control in terms of, you know, being the toughest thing is being a high school basketball coach. I mean, you're going to win games, you're going to lose games and stuff of that particular nature. We can always go back to that. Yeah, I should have called timeout. I should have fouled or I should have put this guy in. I should have did that. And, and no. But when you look back at it, those things come and go. But what, what never fails is like, even with the kids I coached at Sumter, you know, I have parents to this day that I coach that call me on the phone crying like, you saved my son's life, you know, because it, I coached kids who had never seen their father never came to see them play and they were the best player on the team 
walking in the guidance office and the, the parents calling me in there because the kid wrote a note that he don't know what he want to see the next day because his dad never came to see him play. And I got to go in there and talk to him. Like, well, I can't be a dad. I could be an uncle because you cost too much. You know, you make them laugh, <laughs> but you care about them just yeah. the same. They always feed my kids. I always, you know, like I tell them, I say, I spend more time with y'all than I do my own family during the basketball season. Mm -hmm. So my daughter's in the fourth grade. So she is washed up at 730, laying in the bed at 745. My wife, they knocked out by eight. You know, by the time I make sure everybody get in the car and do what I got to do at the gym and lock stuff up and put, I might be leaving there at seven. Some days it might be seven thirty. If it's a game, it might be nine, ten, eleven. You know, I'm here with y'all. Sometimes you might have to give a kid a ride. Sometimes you might have to buy two Gatorades instead of one. You know, all this kind of stuff, the sacrifices you made for kids or for for individuals who might not be able to have the certain things that you have, or you might be the only thing that they have. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I've experienced that in coaching where, you know, you have mamas and daddies. I have mamas to this day call me and ask me to discipline their child because he didn't clean his room. They don't want to call the daddy because the daddy is their best friend. <laughs> you know, wow. it's every different dynamic, yeah. you know. And and when you get to that point where, where parents, when somebody entrusts you with their child's livelihood, I think that's the most powerful thing that, that, that a human being can be in control of. You know, another person's life and their development. And and every year is different. Every every kid can be different. I know you probably see a lot of the same things over and over, but you know, every year could bring something a little bit different and something not uh, that that's fairly recent is uh, social media. Now, I think you do a great job on social media. What, what role do you believe that it plays in high school athletics and particularly basketball and maybe even basketball recruiting? And and is it a good thing? Yeah, yeah, I, I think it plays a big role. Like I was at Catawba, so. You know, we will always, if, if I'm recruiting John Combs, we think, oh, we got, and, and, I, and I tell parents and I tell kids to this day, I said, they like, what, what's the best thing you can do to get me recruited? I said, guess what? I'm going to play against the other kids that are being recruited. We're going to go out here and play against Flood, who has offers from this school, that school, that school, that school. That's the best way to sell you. What? How did you play against him? How did you play against, you know, P.J. Dozier? How did you play against, you know, Russell um you know, um, how did you play against Tajay? How did you play against Malcolm? How did you play against these particular guys? Now, on top of that, your social media, I think, right now is not so much used to sell you than to for for colleges and coaches to understand who you are. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because, you know, you hit that send button, you know, and you get caught up in stupid stuff. You can't take that back. Yep. And colleges have coaches that their only job is to social media. So if I know I'm, I'm recruiting John Combs, we like you. Guess what? We're going to follow you on Twitter. We're going to follow you on Instagram. And we're not going to comment. We're just going to see who you're talking to. If you like this this song, if you like this particular, what you post, or are you, st are you posting basketball stuff? Are you posting, they, they watch all that to develop, you know, what type of person. On, and then on the first thing they do, what we do, we're going to call the school, get the transcript, get the grades. Yeah. Because it's, it does us no good to waste time recruiting John Combs where we know that you're not going to be eligible to play for us next year. We're going to move on to Joe Ingles, who might not be as talented, but guess what? He got a 3.0 and you got a 1.8. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things I try to tell guys is I believe, you know, sometimes before they even do check your transcript, they're going to check your social media. Because you, yeah. sometimes you might not be recruitable because of what you put on your social media. And then you're going to go in to check the transcript, and you're right. Exactly. You I make, agree with that. Yeah, you make yourself more recruitable by the better grades and stuff to get. Now, do you have a social media policy with your team, or do you just kind of monitor what your kids do? No, I don't have a policy. I tell parents when I have a parent meeting with the kids, I tell them this right here. 
and I'm, I'm honest with them. And, and then even even like especially when you get into the basketball season, you don't need to post nothing about how we beat the team and you scored this and you did this and you did that and all this other kind of stuff. And parents don't need to post. I said, because somebody's always watching. And I tell the parents, I said, treat your child like, okay, even with a haircut, with the way they carry themselves, you know that every day you got to go to a job. You got to be there a certain time. You got to do what your supervisor asks you to do and stuff like that. You have rules and regulations. If your child walked in there with a, a, a polo top of how he's looking now, how he's talking now, and it, would you hire him? Would you give him $40,000 a year? So when I was at Catawba, it cost $39,000 a year to go to Catawba, a private school. $39,000. Is your child's ability and who he is worth $40,000 a year? You, you know? And I said, you have to police it with just common sense. I said, during the basketball season, we don't need to post any highlights. There's enough. If, if you're good enough, you know, prep hoops. Um, there's a bunch of people that's gonna put you out there. You know, yeah. there's not too much you gotta do. And I said, on top of that, high school coaches are gonna sell you. You know how it is. You you coaching Russell or you coaching, you know, Malcolm back in the day. Hey, Coach Cohen, how you doing? We were gonna see Malcolm. Um, is there anybody else you think we could look at? Is there anybody else you playing against? And well, man, I seen this Joe Jones kid. Where you might need to watch him. You know, and and that's how it is. You're not gonna send nobody no highlight tape and they look at it like. Oh my God! I'm gonna get this kid thirty thousand dollars. Yeah. Now, barring that you six ten, six eleven, seven foot, and you can yeah. dunk it. If you're a guard, it's it's kind of, you know, but it can hurt you more so than it can help you, in terms of, you know, your 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 comments, what you like, who you follow, and all that kind of stuff like that. I've even started to hear some college coaches mentioned how kids' parents are on social media. That that's they they even mm-hmm. take notice of that. Um, that they, they're like, do, do I want to get involved with this kid because of what their parents post, repost, and you know, is are they going to be a problem? So, I I think social media can play a really good role, and I like it. So I'll be interested to see how it continues uh, to grow. Now, do you believe there should be a shot clock for high school basketball? Um, I, I think under the right circumstances, you have to have the right uh system and support system in place because you you know you go to these different like rural school districts it's, it's hard enough to find somebody to run the clock accurately mm-hmm. you know and on top of installing you know the the paying the the who funding to actually put this the, the clocks in the gym and then you got to reteach you know when to start it uh is it going to reset back to the original 30 you get offensive rebound which defeats the purpose um how the referee's going to referee did the ball you don't have instant replay so did the ball hit the rim at the clock, you know what I mean? You might get into another whole can of worms to a certain degree without certain teaching. You might want to integrate it with, uh, and I know high school, to say the high school league wants to be, you know, the 1A does the same thing as 5A and all that kind of stuff like like, like that. Yeah, do, you know, I, I think that teams hold the ball and all that kind of stuff. I guess you, you coach towards your talent. Mm-hmm. I just think that, yeah, we were in, in a perfect world, a, a, clock, a shot clock would be, you know, would it make you shoot quicker? Would it make, you know, uh, you know, what, what's the what's the purpose? Is, is it the main purpose of the shot clock? Is it prevent a team from holding the basketball? Were you afraid to get up and play D? Or what's the main purpose of having it? You, you know, you ask yourself this right here because you get to the point where, okay, you might increase the number of bad shots. Mm-hmm. The kid's going to come and take two or three passes and I got to shoot it because of the shot clock or on top of the person that's operating it. You, you, is it another, you got to get a whole another entity and then now school's going to have to pay for that third or fourth person at the scores table. 
So it's a lot more and then just, okay, yeah, I would love in a perfect world. Yeah. If, you, if, you, if we like college or like some of these high level tournaments that you go to where it's, it's a no brainer, I think they may need to incorporate it in the Christmas tournaments and the preseason tournaments in certain things, maybe region play, you know, um, gradually, but then to just throw it on everybody and say, okay, shot clock, you yeah. know, cause I, I think it's going to, it's going to be a training curve, you know, for ADs, um, for personnel working the game, for installing them. And a lot of these gyms who might not have the, the newer, uh, basketball support facility or whatever it may be, you know, would it be fair across the board where a small 1A school who might not have the funding can do the same thing as a doorman, yeah. but have the same expectations who don't have the class. So I think it's, you know, it would be good if it's kind of phased in the right way, mm-hmm. but I don't think they say next year, okay, 2020, we have a, a three point cut, you know, cause I think that the officials and the coaches and a lot of people still struggle with the regular rules. On top of okay, did that ball hit the clock? Did the ball hit the rim? That's a whole nother argument. Oh yeah. Well, it hit the rim. You should have reset it. Uh, you know. <laughs> and who's uh, making that call? Is the official making that call? Or you know who resets yeah. it? Doesn't reset it? No. I, 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 I like. I would like one, but you're right. Only if it's done right. There are certainly yeah a lot of things to to look at when it comes to that. How how would you say you're different as a coach today than when your first year as a head basketball coach? Do, do you feel like you're any different, or have you grown more? What what, what would you think? Yeah, I think, you know, with me being a, having been a, a player when I first really started coaching and, and I got the first opportunity to coach JV at, you know, Lower Richland under, um, you know, the late Chip Atkins and stuff like that, but took a nature, you you kind of coach and you think that, okay, when I tell this kid to do something, he's going to see it from my perspective. <laughs> he's going <laughs> to understand that, you know, okay, stop John Combs. Don't let him score. You know, you don't, you know, you, when you get older, you understand that they don't, you have to kind of coach them the same way you have to teach them. Like they don't know anything. You got to teach them angles, spacing, um, um, how to anticipate um, and, and stuff of that particular nature. So I think I've grown with uh, the the teaching component, you know, more so everything. Than, but I had opportunity to go through, you know, like the, the teaching process when I went through um, the master's program at um, um, Scotch Branch, you know, uh, when I ended up, you know, getting my really first head coaching opportunity when Coach um, Cookie Court passed away in an accident that year. Um, and then, you know, getting the, the, the opportunity at Sumter the following year. And then, you know, uh, you know, now with, you know, me being at Northeast, it's a totally different perspective because you get to understand, you know, uh, the the different dynamic of, of, of kids. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and how they not 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 necessarily how you teach them, but how they learn, which is more important in the in the process. I think a lot of a lot of coaches just teach, teach, teach. But you know, like you know, when you're in education, you gotta understand about bloom, where they gotta be able to apply what you've taught them, and understand it, and and and, and apply it in in the to, to real world um, experiences. Well, the one thing you've always impressed me as a coach, I've always think you've done a, a, a great job. And ever since I've known you, you're super competitive, ultra competitive. And I think sometimes players, really good players, you know, when they're so competitive, they have a hard time transitioning to the coaching world because sometimes you're going to be coaching kids that are not as uh, inwardly competitive as they are. And but just hearing you talk and say that, that tells me that you seems like you you really understand that. You still demand it and and, and still and figure out a way to to, to teach that. Has, was that a struggle for you to realize that maybe not every kid was as competitive as you, or is that 
not something that was a big deal to you. Yeah, and um, um, that that's something that you know when I I talked to the players when I first got the job, that's something I told them this right here, and I didn't I didn't mean it in a disrespectful way. Sometimes the hardest thing for adults to to handle a lot of time is the truth. Mm-hmm. It's not like you know you can take it as um as being demeaning or anything like that. I said I told the boys I said the most difficult thing that you're gonna have to get over is having a man tell you to do something that you might not understand, might not agree with, and expecting you to do it to the best of your ability without questioning it. That's the that's the big thing I get over. Because you're used to, why? Well, I got to do this. I ain't never did this before. Da, da, da. You know, and you, and you spend so much time fighting that battle, you know, mm-hmm. instead of saying, okay, you know, and then and, 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 and inheriting when I went to Richard Northeast, you know, and I got to, you know, talking to Coach Former and watching the team. I'm inheriting a group that was 1-19. Mm-hmm. So one in nineteen means not just that the players that were there were bad was the ones that are JV that watching them play the environment well okay if we lose it's okay if the parents well my sons you know the whole environment is used to not being successful I don't want to say used to losing they're used to not being successful not being the best so you got to accept that so when you come in it's gonna be a learning curve and 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 a lot of the ones who who got the talent are not going to make that curve because they just feel like they're more talented than the next person and that you can win with them, but you can't win with them. You can't win with anybody who don't, who doesn't do their, their best with, with what they're talent. Cause you're going to lose it because there's somebody out there in another high school and another middle school. That's just as good or better than you. Or if they're not better than you, why are you shooting two jump shots? They're in the gym shooting 202 jump shots. They run in until they can't run no more. Why you only run, the sprints. I said, I said, different between a basketball player and playing basketball. Some of y'all only play basketball when the coach calls practice. <laughs> that. That, and that's only and that, that means you play basketball. You're not a basketball player. A basketball player who's something who works on everything they got to do. First thing they got to do is that you're going to make sure that you do what you got to do in that classroom to make sure that you're eligible to play. Then the second thing you're going to do is that you're going to work on your weakness. You're going to say, you're going to figure out, okay, can I dribble? Can I lay the ball with my left hand? Can I pass my left hand? And instead of taking it as an insult, like, man, I can do that, I can do that, you're going to say, okay, what can I do to get better? How can I fix it? That's when you start to grow. Once in your mind, I tell my kids this, once you're in your mind and you think that you're good, you don't get any better. And there's somebody out there who's better than you, and I've seen it at the college level. I said, think about all the different high schools. I said, even in the 4A, just think about 4A. We got 40, 42, 44 teams. Say, let's say 10 players per team. So 440 kids in just one um, um, classification. One, 400. How many seniors? We say, I don't know, it's 100 that you got to compete against. Now let's go to 5A. Let's go now. Let's go to another state. Let's go to North Carolina. Add them numbers. Let's go. So, what makes you different than the other 1,100 kids? that there might be only 200 scholarships for, you know, what separates you from them when you can run just as fast and jump just as, just as high, what separates you? You have to be able to do something that separates you from, you know, the other kid. And sometimes it might be social media. Like I tell kids, it's not a big difference between kids that's playing basketball at Queens, Lincoln Memorial or South Carolina state or North Carolina, not talent wise. It's because we recruited a kid who's the best kid at South Carolina State when I was at Catawba, but we just didn't have the money. It's D2, so, you know, it's just a partial scholarship. They pay for your room and board books and maybe a percentage of your tuition outside of what you get 
you know, scholarship money. You just don't, they don't have 13 full scholarship guys or 14 like the University of South Carolina or Alabama. You might have six scholarships. You might have seven scholarships. You might have eight scholarships. You, you understand what I'm saying? So what gives yourself a better opportunity to, to be successful? Do you eliminate it from your freshman year? So as a coach now, I'm on the freshman and sophomore. Get off. You have to get off to a good start academically in high school from the beginning or you're going to mess yourself up, you know, down the line, even if you're talented. No, that's really good stuff, Coach. Last question here for you. When you're done coaching, how do you want to, how do you want to be remembered as a coach? Um, I just think that I want to remember where they can say, you know, job well done. You did, you did an, an outstanding job with, you know, whatever circumstance, whatever kid, whatever environment, you know, that was dealt with you. You know, there's going to be a lot of people that are remembered for the games they won and the championships they won and stuff like that. But I think that I want to re- be remembered more so about the, 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 the type of kid that I helped become and, you know, into a man. I, I, I tell my parents and, and my mother's this. I said, you you cannot raise a man, raise a boy to be somebody that you probably wouldn't even want to marry in your older world in terms of accepting responsibility for their actions, doing their best. When stuff don't go right, you know, it's my fault. I didn't, you know, run fast. It's my fault. I didn't work on my game. It's my fault. You can't keep making excuses for them and then later on expect them to be a man. Man, you're gonna, it's, you know, you have some adversity. You got to work through it. You're gonna be uncomfortable. You got to make the uncomfortable comfortable. So, you know, when I get done coaching, and you know, whenever God says, you know, you know, you you you've done all I asked you to do, you know, I just want the people who see, you know, me coach and me play. I, I did the best that I I could, all that I could. And um, just like I, my module with my Sumter kids and my, 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 my Northeast kids, the only thing you have control over is laying that perfect brick every day. Did you get out of the bed good? Did you brush your teeth? Did you take a shower? Did you be on time for first block? Did you do your best in first block? Did you do your best in second block? Did you do your best in third block? Did you have a good lunch? Did you do your best in fourth block? Did you have a good practice? Did you speak to your parents? Did you do, okay, put that day away. I mean, you had a good day. Now you're going to move on and have, you know, do the same thing the next day. That's the only thing you can control is laying that perfect brick every day. And you don't set out to make a wall, but eventually when you look back, you're going to have built a house because you've done the, the right things, every opportunity that you had to do. And if I can instill that in the kids that I, uh, I coach and I interact with, then then I'll be happy. Well, Coach, I think you're well on your way on that. You've, you've done a, a, a great job, and I certainly appreciate the time that you've invested with us today i certainly wish you the best of luck in the future except two games a a year (laughs) but thank you again for your time and you know just thank you for all that you do okay appreciate you coach you have um, a blessed night and stay safe thank you coach you've been listening to the ball meadows state podcast for our show notes and other valuable information please visit our website at ballmeadowsstate.com We would love to connect with you on social media and hear what you think. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by going to at Balmetto State. Thank you for investing your time with us.